0: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Since we started recording our series about democracy with Leia Ippi, we've had quite a lot of questions about democracy for Lea, and a bit for me, but mainly for Leia. And so I'm delighted to say that Leia is here to try and answer some of them, all of them. Let's see how we go. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read amazing writing about democracy, politics, and everything else. If you'd like to subscribe for a special rate, just go to lrb.me ppf. That's lrb.me ppf. We've had quite a lot of questions, and apologies if we don't get to your question. If you've sent one in, we will do more of this. Leia, I've tried to pick some that I think connect. I may have got it wrong, but I think there's a link between these different questions. They're very different kinds of questions. But the first couple definitely are connected. In a way, they are the same question, but I'm going to pose them both, and then we'll see where we go. And We may have a lot to say about this, or we may not. So One is from Oliver. And he says, I'd like to hear more from Leia about the link between democracy and freedom. And his point is, I quote from his question, the way I see it, democracy is as much about making your choice as it is about compromising or submitting to the choices of others. And then from Twitter, someone who is called on Twitter, Wandering Winder, says, Leia refers to an idealized form of democracy where people only accept authority if they are the source of that authority and refers to a process where we are, at the end, the authors of all the laws we are subjected to. If things are so direct, how far is this from anarchy? Or, this is not in the question one might say from anarchism, which is maybe something that we could discuss. So these are two questions about democracy and personal freedom, and I think they both highlight something that many people notice about democracy, which is it is often presented as a sort of all things to all people idea, But there is potentially a deep tension between the group aspect of democracy, particularly majority rule, which basically does mean submitting to the views of others, because no one's in the majority all the time. And if you are in the majority all the time, then it's a pretty odd kind of democracy. And that version of democracy that suggests it's a form of individual self-actualization. And those two things can't both be true. And at the extreme end, or maybe it isn't even the extreme end, various philosophers over the centuries have said, actually, the only conclusion you can draw from this is if you really believe in the self-actualization aspect of this, you have to reject the group rule aspect of it. And at the extreme, that does mean not democracy, but anarchy.
0: Yeah, I think they're both really good questions. And I think maybe they also point to One way in which we actually reduce our understanding of democracy to just what comes out of a decision process, as opposed to how we get to the decisions that we make. And I suspect in my understanding of democracy, it's a more robust understanding of how we communicate with other people and how we come to make decisions with them. But it's not a process in which you just take any preferences as they are, but you also try and reflect on where are these preferences grounded? And is there a more enlightened way, a more reflexive way of looking at these preferences? And then mechanism of communication and resolving disputes that tries to think about how you can incorporate other people's concerns in your own view of what needs to be done in a way. That's a very roundabout way of saying that it seems to me that the concern about tyranny of majority that a lot of people raise is one where you assume that you enter into a decision-making process with certain thoughts and certain views of what you want to come out of it. And then the result is something that you have to accept, even if it's against what you wanted to have at the beginning. And so there is a sense in which the decision of the collective is very different from where you started and you have to accept it regardless of whether it reflects your preferences or doesn't reflect your preferences. And if you think about democracy as just that, as just the result, then of course, there is a problem with how you start and where you end up and potentially also an oppressive dynamic because you enter with a preference. And if you end up on the minority in the the decision, then of course, you've been oppressed somehow. Someone else's view has prevailed. But if you think of democracy as a conversation and as a process that isn't just reduced to this final decision, but it's one where you actually try to elaborate and understand other people's preferences and have, as I say, a more enlightened way of thinking about where are these different views coming from and what is making us decide this way rather than this other way, there is more that goes on in a democratic decision making than just the results that we all have to accept. And so, in that sense, I think this is where. Perhaps also the difference is with anarchy, and there are both ways of thinking about how can you preserve freedom, but in the anarchist thinking, there is less attention to the institutions and to the ways in which institutions channels decisions and channel conversations and so the idea is that then you know anarchy is the freedom that of whoever enters that process is the same as whatever comes out of that process, whereas in the democratic discussion, there is an engagement with the others, that isn't just reducible to where the individual is coming in, but there is a sense in which you're trying to incorporate other, other people's views. And so it's a more dialogic way, I guess, of making sense of freedom or more, I'd say, more relational way of thinking about freedom. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a very good question, but maybe it's a question that points to the limitations of our just reducing democracy to the end result rather than what happens all along somehow.
1: In the modern understanding of democracy, it has often been not reduced to but identified with the vote as the key device, which is actually not true of ancient democracy. Not, I mean, it was part of it, but I'm not, I don't think the vote was actually the thing that made it democratic. But in the modern world, and this is one of my bugbears, I've often felt this and I'm guilty of it because I read newspapers, occasionally write for newspapers, you do too. The fixation on elections and election results as the thing that both defines democracy and tells you the health of a democracy, partly whether you're guy or not guy one or not and that is a limitation i completely accept that on the other hand i suppose there's part of me that still believes that in a democracy there will be a widespread experience of loss the feeling of having lost the argument the vote there are sides i mean however inclusive and open the conversation is and however enlightened the discussion is it's still, I think, in any democracy going to be possible to lose. The standard, maybe it's too reductive, but the standard way that you keep the losers in the game is basically you say to them, it might be your turn next time. So there's a kind of turn and turn about aspect to it, which isn't, that is not the deepest way to have a conversation. I mean, a lot of conversations are a bit like that. I mean, we probably all sat in pubs where you kind of feel like what we're doing is not having a conversation. It's just, it's your turn to talk, then your turn to talk, then your turn to talk democracy has a bit of that modern democracy quality to it. I think it's also true that it's becoming a less and less plausible defense of democracy for the losers. And one of the features of 21st century democracy, and it's sometimes slightly jargony term, but it's described as the, the loss of losers' consent, that the losers don't feel that they might be lucky next time. They kind of feel that this loss is one that they can't tolerate. And some of that is because democracy has become more plebiscitary that is more of a sort of referendum style thing where you get these big decisions that feel like all or nothing decisions that's a very long-winded way of saying i still i think have some sympathy with the idea that there's a real tension here because you can't write the possibility of simply having lost out of this and you have to give the losers something more than just better luck next time
0: Yeah, I wouldn't put it as better luck next time. I mean, if you trust the procedure and if you trust the process and if you think that all views have been listened to and there's been a meaningful conversation and there hasn't been unfairness in the process, then I don't really understand what it's not better luck next time. It's really that the better side of the argument won under ideal conditions, right? So then we can talk about the kind of less ideal conditions. But in the democratic ideal, the sense is that you make sense of the loss, yes, because it's not uh, irreversible. And that's, I think, it's really important that you know that it's not irreversible. You know that next time you'll have a better argument. You will enter the process with more information. You will figure out what all parties won. And so there is something about the process of education that goes through from one struggle, from one democratic battle to the other and in that sense this is the meaningfulness i think of this idea that every process is reversible and and so when that process becomes irreversible i worry that what you have is actually no longer democracy So then it's not the problem of democracy, it's the problem of the transforming of democracy into something else. And one of the questions that people raise when they think about the crisis of democracy in contemporary politics, for example, my worry is that they blame on democracy, things that aren't really to do with democracy. It's just that the institutional system that we have, which for, as we've mentioned before for a time, contingently reflected a more wider and a more meaningful conversation and more stakeholders in the process, Because of the changes in the political economic environment and because of the transformations of politics and the pressure on politicians of money or general societal transformations means that now the losers more often really lose, and they don't even see a good reason for why they've lost. They just see the arbitrary power of others that prevails. And so they see that you know, rich people keep getting rich, and societies become more and more unequal. And the changes that are required are often the cost of those changes. They have to bear it, but without really seeing the benefits. And all of these, I don't think, are structural defects of democracy. They're actually something that shows us that What we call democracy is not really democracy. It's more edging towards a form of oligarchic, in in, in the ancient Greek sense of the term, of process of decision-making where the rich and the wealthy call the shots and everyone else has to absorb the consequences of those decisions. And democracy becomes then about this sense of loss, but because it's not democracy really anymore, it's because it's become something else. And for it to stay democracy, this sense of reversibility of the outcome needs to be there and needs to be preserved. And the conversation, the, the taking turns and is a natural part of just diversity and exchanging and pluralism. And also the fact that reasonable people will have also sometimes different opinions.
1: Before we come on to another question, I just want to sort of follow up on the point about anarchy and anarchism, it's a very interesting subject. And I, I feel we could almost record I'm sure we could record a podcast just about that. But I had a couple of thoughts coming out of that. So one in response to what you've just said, which is, do you think under those conditions that anarchy becomes a more appealing idea? So you have to be clear, when we say anarchy, we're not talking about the breakdown of order and everyone killing each other. We're talking about the belief that individuals have a right simply to refuse to accept or to obey the outcome of these collective processes and to assert their own individual autonomy in the face of it. That can be a rejection of even what you are describing as democracy. You know, I'm simply going to reject this collective outcome, even if it is the result of a process of deliberation or discussion in which I've played a full part. But the thin version of democracy, which as you say, is straying into being something else, do you think it it makes, what are the conditions under which you think anarchism as a philosophy becomes more appealing? And I partly ask that because in the history of philosophy and then its impact on, on wider thinking, anarchism is more appealing at some times than others. It's taken more seriously at some times than others. It was taken pretty seriously in the 1870s and it was taken pretty seriously in the 1970s, but not so much in some of the periods in between. And I'm sometimes surprised that it isn't a bigger deal now, actually. It doesn't seem to have the cachet that it had even in the nineteen seventies, where it was quite a serious and widely discussed philosophical and broader position, a sort of countercultural position. I just not you know, I'm not gonna accept what the man says. I'm just not gonna damn well do it. And it's my right to say no, it's my basic right. If if we live in societies that talk about autonomy, this is how I express my autonomy. And it it surprises me a bit that it doesn't have more reach in the 2020s. And I feel that part of the reason for that is somehow the idea of anarchy and anarchic forms of expression has got bound up with the internet. The internet is often described as a quite an anarchic space of expression. But that is a really fake kind of anarchy because it's autonomy and freedom of expression under conditions that the person expressing those views has almost no control over deeply manipulated often you know if twitter is anarchic it's you know it's it's anarchy ruled by one man you know it's a sort of anarchic tyranny or a tyrannical form of anarchism and i i have no basis for this apart from my gut instinct i feel that the internet has discredited the idea of anarchy
0: I think there are different versions of anarchy, though, and maybe I'm more, and we should really have an episode on this because it's such an interesting and complex topic, and I have a lot of sympathy for some versions of anarchist thinking, but more as a sort of utopia of freedom in the future that requires an institutional process to get there. So something, uh, yeah, So maybe more akin to a a sort of socialist anarchism. So more 1870s than 1970s. More, exactly, but because I think I appreciate the idea that there is a sense in which... Every institution, one way or another, will exercise power in unilateral, arbitrary ways one way or another for one reason or another. And so for me, the utopia is one where you have a society in which you know, you don't need these external forms of law giving and you don't need this external institutional power where it's people can coordinate spontaneously and come to the right decisions. But for that, a lot of education is required and a very long transitional process needs to be in place. It's not a given. It's not something that you can find in every society. So I think of anarchy more as a utopia than as a, something that can be viable in the short term. And on the other hand, I also see the attraction of anarchist thinking, given the limitations of the present but it seems to me that all of the objections to democracy that we've just been raising now, and just the sense of irreversible loss and so on, they would also apply to an anarchist society in which you take preferences as they are. and so it seems to me that if you take this argument that is well i just nobody's going to make me do this well someone is going to make you do it anyway regardless of where you are and Uh, unless you're lucky enough and and unless you're lucky enough to be the one exactly who has like the money and has the power otherwise it's more like the state of nature and then there you're like at the mercy of it's really for me anarchy at that stage is really like the war of all against all and what you're just saying is i'm willing to make myself vulnerable to the exercise of arbitrary power. And it's just the fact that it's unpredictable in what direction it's coming that makes it more appealing to me. But otherwise, someone will always exercise power regardless of how you're justifying it. And the fact that you hold on to your rights is no guarantee that people will respect their rights. So in a sense, the notion of rights is only meaningful if there is a relation or a process whereby a body can help you enforce those rights. And that means you have some authority and you have some institution that you're subjecting yourself to. If you say, well, I'm just going to hold on to my rights and I don't care about what authority is trying to make me do, well, then there is no guarantee that your rights will be respected. So you will be just at the mercy of whoever has more weapons or more money or is stronger than you or smarter than you or whatever. And then you have no mechanism of protecting yourself. So I think it's a... I can see the attraction of that way of thinking, but I think it's also flawed and dangerous and not at all immune to the criticism of these other ways of thinking about decision making.
1: And I think sometimes it gets mixed up with, and part of its appeal comes from this, with the idea of a kind of escape, there's a way out, right? So I will I will assert my autonomy and refuse to subject myself to what the man tells me to do by kind of going off grid and you know, the, the anarchist, not your utopian ideal, which is... A much richer social idea, but the individualist anarchist idea is sometimes that. And I think some of the 1970s ish appeal of this, the countercultural appeal of it, has that idea that it ought to be possible not to feel trapped by these political but also social constraints. And I just think, and this may be one of the reasons, again, it's less appealing now, it's just impossible to imagine even what it would mean to go off grid in the 2020s. And there are some great dystopian novels about this about the futility in in, in the world that we live in with with the technological forms of communication that we have the utter futility in a kind of drone-based world of thinking you know like Rousseau that if you you the Rousseauian ideal that it's not the war of all against all in the state of nature not because we're nice it's not because Rousseau thought human beings are nice and Hobbes thought that they were nasty but Rousseau thought in the state of nature you can walk away You can walk away from any situation in which you are subject to the will of another. Literally, you can disappear into the woods. No, you can't.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I think
1: that's part of the problem.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the default here is just one it's a case of not knowing where power is coming from. It's not a case of not having any power exercised over you because the minute you turn on your computer, the minute yeah. you start communicating, the minute you, you, try, you go to work or whatever, every aspect of our lives is regulated by some authority or other and it's impossible to think how you would operate outside of those authorities.
1: So another question. Actually, this is a, a group of questions that came from Peter Serato, and these come from a very different perspective on democracy, I'd say these questions, and and Peter says in this, they're deliberately provocative, are, and I'm not going to say they're cynical, uh, but you could say they're hyper-realist or realistic. They pick up on something that is also often said about the idea of democracy by people who are a little sceptical, if not cynical, which is that we focus a lot on the ways in which in a democratic system of politics, the voters or the people shape what those in power do but there is a view that actually the predominant experience of democratic life is the people in power not just shaping what the voters or the people do but who they are that there's an enormous amount of manipulation that takes place in order you know as Brecht said to vote the people out and replace them with a the more amenable people So Peter says, and I'll just give a couple, he actually has quite a long list and they get more cynical as they go along, but I'll just do the first couple. There's enough to talk about here. Does democracy perversely, and I think here by democracy, we are talking about modern majoritarian democracy. Does democracy perversely incentivize a drive towards all forms of, in quote marks, choosing your voters by those in power? And then Peter says, along a scale from voter restrictions at gerrymandering at one end, to ethnic cleansing and ultimately genocide at the other. And the second question is, does democracy perversely incentivize in-tribe high birth rates and out-tribe birth rate limitations, poor maternal healthcare, all the way to forced sterilization? And this is clearly picking up on what has often been written about, which is in certain historical and social settings. Democracy goes along with the things that are described here, ethnic cleansing For sterilization because democracy does incentivize those with power to create permanent majorities is that to we're talking about a democracy in a different sense here so this is a very different kind of question but when you hear that do you think it's a necessary note of realism injected into this conversation
0: yes and no because well it's a Plausible criticism, if you take democracy as it presents itself in the institutional form that we know it, and if you accept that that is what democracy is and what it means, Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, we have these institutions, we call them democratic institutions, there is an ideal of freedom behind them, and we assume that this ideal of freedom is one way or another realized by these institutions, and now we have these criticisms. But in my version of democracy, which is the ideal version, all of these objections are objections that apply if you have a kind of constituted demos. In other words, if you have, think about the the ethnic cleansing or the discussion around gerrymandering, that assumes that the unit to which decision-making, democratic decision-making applies is already constituted. And then you're thinking, how does power get exercised within this unit? But in my story of democracy, that is also open. So who gets to make the demos is itself a question of democratic decision-making and democratic debate. And it may well be that all these units within which we think democracy applies aren't actually democratic because we don't have the kind of expansion of the demos that democracy really requires for freedom to be realized and ideal. That's a very complicated way of saying that I think... What people are pointing at when they say, you know, it it incentivizes this, it incentivizes that is you take the Boundaries of democracy as given. And then you think, okay, what are the incentives that arise for politicians to maintain power within these boundaries, whether the boundaries of the ethnic group or whether the boundaries of the kind of political unit to which it applies or whichever other way, however you want to kind of cash it. But in the part of the radicalness of democracy is that the question of the boundaries of democracy is itself open for political and adjudication and democratic adjudication. And so you need to have a process in place that delivers the right questions that then enable you to revise the boundaries or even not have boundaries at all as the question develops in terms of what does democracy mean? So I think that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that I think, and, and this is now independently of this question of the boundaries and of the demos, the other part is that often in our democracies, the decision makers are completely separate from the citizens who vote them. And one of the reasons that citizens are vulnerable to being manipulated by decision makers is that they give representatives power in the moment in which they vote for them and elect them. And then once they're elected, they lose that power. But if we have institutions and decision making and a kind of democratic design that enables people to maintain that power over politicians that they give them in the moment of voting then the politicians wouldn't have this incentive to manipulate them because they would be constantly checked. Right now, the, the system is such that it all, again, happens before politicians are voted into power. Once they're voted, that's it. They're no longer accountable to whoever voted for them. Or, I mean, they are if they go to the next election, but then there are ways in which they can get around this problem. If you maintain the link between representatives and the represented as the radical Democrats would say you need to do for democracy to keep working, then the the elected representatives don't have the incentives and don't even have the possibility anymore of proceeding regardless of what the people who voted for them think because they're constantly kept in check by them. And, you know, there's, as you know, in the history of political thought, lots of different answers to this problem from imperative mandates to thinking about how often do you run elections, to think about what do you actually vote for and so on. So to do both with timing and with the substantive questions. But I think the more, the closer you get to the radical democratic end, the more there are answers to this problem.
1: One of the views in the history of political thoughts of early 19th century radical Democrats, they said you need to have elections every year because if you allow people to be elected for three or four years, they will become the manipulators that you described. One of the ironies here is that the major, in a major democracy, major political institution that is closest to that is the US House of Representatives where they have elections every two years. And it's also the most gerrymandered the most vulnerable to gerrymandering, but that's precisely because I think, I completely agree with what you just said, but I think the mistake that people would make when they hear you is to think that means more elections. It's just elections, elections, elections. If you just have lots and lots of elections, you don't get less, you get more of this kind of game playing of the system. It has to be means of checking, forms of participation that aren't just, to go back to where we started, the vote. And it's another, I think, of the mistakes that people make, and this is a common mistake, which is to equate the health of a democracy with voter turnout, as though somehow that is the true measure of political participation. And there are enough examples from actual political history of the opposite being true. So voter turnout was very, very high in the Weimar Republic. That was not a sign of the health of the Weimar Republic as a democracy. It was a sign of its weakness because people were so shit scared that the other side were going to win because they thought under these conditions, this this actually... In its way, very boundaryed because of the European context, democracy. If the other lot get in, that might be the end for us. The same was true after the American invasion of Iraq, when they they set up these elections, and the Americans said, "Look, this is an incredibly healthy democracy because turnout here is ninety percent." So the reason that turnout was ninety percent is because it was tribal, and there was a existential fear of the other side getting in, which is the sign of a weakness of a democracy because it's incredibly fragile and therefore will be vulnerable to the things that were in those questions. So I completely agree with the answer that you just gave. I think the misunderstanding would be that it would then be sort of read through those more reductive accounts of what a democracy is. It's voting, it's election, it's turnout, it's participation. So the other thing that has to be opened, are not just the borders and the boundaries, what has to be opened are the institutional forms.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I And, and I would also add, in that sense, a uh, sort of radical understanding of the institutional forms, that is to say the relationship between the economic power and political power. Because one of the problems that you have now is that you can have elections every six months if you like, but if you're not touching the fundamentals of society, then it's also very easy for people to be completely disillusioned because they think, okay, why am I turning up to vote every six months? And then in the end, decisions are always taken by big donors, by lobbying, by party campaign finance being, I mean, this is the case in the US, by campaign finance being determined by billionaires and so on. So then you have you have this caricature of democracy, which pretends to give people a lot of power and a lot of voice, but when they know really well that it's only on some small things that they're being consulted and on all the big things, nobody's actually consulting them. Decisions are constantly imposed on them. And this is where I think that we've talked about this before, I think where democracy and capitalism are not, com- are not compatible because capitalism sets in motion an incentive system that deprives democracy of its meaningfulness.
1: So this next question, I think, is a question for me. So I'll try and answer it, but then you can answer it too. Um, From Dee Withers, saying, I wasn't sure on the idea that democracy prospers in war times. I'd have thought it is more a voluntary dictatorship with no share in decisions, isn't it? So I think that is referring back to something that I must have said, which is that if you look at the circumstances following which certain kinds of democratic flourishing seemed to happen. So particularly the period after the Second World War, sometimes called in Europe the 30 Glorious Years, which was the high point of social democracy of a kind, certainly in the European context. It is impossible to conceive that without the experience of war that preceded it. But I probably didn't express it right if I made it sound like that therefore the experience of war itself is the thing that creates this democratic possibility in the sense that, if you take Britain during the Second World War, yes, it was a dictatorship of a kind. There was a coalition government, power was extraordinarily concentrated, and unlike in the United States, but like most other countries, elections were suspended. So I might say that we shouldn't fixate so much on elections as the be-all and end-all of democracy, but I, I also think that when elections are suspended, that is a sign that democracy has been very seriously curtailed. So it wasn't that... as it were, being all in it together in the war is itself necessarily a democratic experience. And also in wartime, relating back to what you said, you'll experience power in a multitude of ways you might not even be used to, not least if you're in the army. So it's not that I think people would have experienced the Second World War as a profound democratic collective experience, but that the conditions for the kinds of reform and also actually for some of the experimentation does seem to follow from a collective social shock. So it doesn't just have to be war, but I think it is interesting in the United States that the Great Depression wasn't sufficient for this. It did take the experience of total war to create the conditions for what happened after the Second World War. But it's also true that this is, I do think this is cyclical in the sense that the conditions of collective shock that produce the circumstances for forms of democratic solidarity, which... Open up new possibilities themselves, then to breed a kind of complacency which limits the scope for that precisely that kind of experimentation, which leads to the next shock. And the history of modern democracy, I think, is a history of these cycles of democracies not paying attention enough to the necessary conditions for their flourishing, leading to circumstances that are sufficiently dangerous to remind them of the necessary conditions for their flourishing, out of which comes. The next iteration of the cycle. And I don't know where we are in that cycle now. I think it's an open question. But I think we might be quite close to the circumstances in which people think we have lost sight of the necessary conditions for our flourishing and the new possibilities are open up. That would be my optimistic view. My pessimistic view would be we haven't had the shock yet, the actual shock, the real shock. Maybe not of war, but of something else in, in stable prosperous Western democracies and it may yet be to come.
0: Yeah although I think it's a process that started in a way I think we are if we think about democracy as a process as and as a temporal continuum we're probably further away from it now than we were um, you know I don't know not too long ago exactly also because if you think about rates of participation and how much people get involved in politics and uh, concerned with the public and activism in political parties. And so all the signs of citizens actually caring about this collective way of making decisions are now signs of apathy and alienation and social disenfranchisement. But for me, the the problem with the, with the relationship between war and democracy is that I think because democracy is about this ideal of freedom, a, a democratic state in an undemocratic world makes no sense. Because if... In, in globalized societies of the kind that we live in, we are so interconnected and power is so diffuse that one vulnerability in one place is felt, as, as Kant used to say in the whole rest of the world, as he was saying this already in the 18th century, but now it's even more the case that it makes no sense to think about national democracy in a world that is not also itself democratic in terms of how international institutions exercise power. And The worry is that if you only think about democracy as national democracy, then you have accepted somehow the presupposition and you have normalized war because, you know, these societies all need to protect their boundaries and they need to protect their their borders and they need to protect their democratic way of life and so on. And I think where we are now is much closer to that view where you have this understanding of democracy as national democracy and constant efforts to isolate from the rest of the world, whether by policing the borders, by controlling immigration. And so this very self-referential way of thinking about democracy that doesn't actually think about the global circumstances and the global institutional environment that is needed for democracy to flourish. And historically, that's also been the case that war has constantly destroyed transnational democratic projects. I mean, you say what you want about the first and the second international and social democracy at the age, in the age of the second international. But first world war is what destroyed European social democracy. Why? Because all these social democratic parties that were united in a kind of democratic project of reforming capitalism or transforming uh, into a socialist direction ended up all in conflict with each other. Because of the war, because of this idea that they had to be good patriots. And so suddenly you had to abandon the struggle for European democracy and the struggle for workers. And you had to instead begin to rally under the flag of your own national states. And this is, I think, why in the end you can only understand democracy in in a global, in the ideal, in a global way rather than just declining it in these national terms.
1: But the First World War also created the conditions for social democracy within national borders, and then a version of an international order based on that which was destroyed by the Second World War, which then created a new set of conditions for social democracy within national borders. I guess my anxiety about what you say, given what I think is in part cyclical about this, is what would be the conditions that would create the possibility, or maybe recreate the possibility? go back to the 1870s, wherever we want to go back to, recreate the possibility for genuine social democracy beyond national borders. Because it seems to me that it would have to require some kind of wake-up call. You know, Climate is usually taken to be the thing that's going to do it. I just don't believe it. I, I, I don't think the timing works, but anything else, the time lags are wrong. It's not an immediate enough problem. And by the time it is immediate enough, it'll be too late and so on. So what is the thing? because global financial contagion doesn't do it. It it puts up those national boundaries. And of course, the thing that you can't wish for in this context is war to do it. Not just because, as you say, it destroys that possibility, but as we're understanding that this is a world based on dangers of conflict that we cannot allow to persist. It's just too dangerous. A global recognition of that would probably follow some of those dangers being realized. I I feel like we're trapped.
0: Well, I mean, I think talking about historical experiences, external shocks often do bring to this rebalancing of power relations. So, you know, you're right that we had this kind of Second World War, at least in Western Europe, Eastern Europe is a different uh, situation and outside Mm -hmm. Europe is also a different situation within the decolonial movement uh, altogether. But even if we just stick to kind of Western Europe, yeah, I think the war, the Second World War was a shock to the system and did bring to a readjustment of power relations, also with the input from these social democratic parties. But I think in the end, it's also what. Uh, led them to this false illusion that this would last and that actually national democracy and this citizenship project that they all hoped to, uh, through which they all hoped to change the circumstances of vulnerable citizens in their own societies would actually last because what it shows you is that this all depends on how things are going for capital. So in the post-World War Uh, scenario, you needed investment and you had an opportunity, there were new markets and there was more need for uh, the kind of rebuilding societies after the war effort. And so in some ways you could, you had more to share. The economy was more amenable to this power sharing between the wealthy and the poor and then, when the market situation changes, kind of uh, capital dynamics develop, then you're in a different situation altogether. And so, unless you have a project of transformation of society that is a European, at least a pan-European project, although I think, as I say, it needs to be a global project, and that of course will take different forms in different sides of the world, but it needs to be in its vision a global one. You will always be stuck with the vulnerabilities of national democracies under these circumstances and absorbing the sh- the political economic shocks.
1: So we've got a couple of questions from Anand Atre. Could you, and this I think is a question for you, elaborate on Dr. Ippi's point regarding institutions to discuss the spectrum with big government, capital B, capital G at one end, and libertarianism at the other? Do you think there is a sweet spot on this spectrum for democracies? I was interested in this question partly because that's another idea that we could discuss at length, libertarianism, which sometimes is thought to drift close to anarchism, but actually I think is very, very different. And one of the reasons I think it's different is I don't think there is a spectrum with big government at one end and libertarianism at the other, because one of the features of libertarianism is it takes a lot of government to organize it. You know, if it's not anarchism, if it's actually libertarianism is essentially what distinguishes it, is it's it's the protection of private property. That's, that's what it primarily is. You know, we won't have a state that does... Things in the name of social justice or anything else, but we will absolutely respect the, the space around individuals and the things that they own, and that can require a hugely elaborate government structure, a bureaucracy. You know, w- one feature of that is sort of patent regimes, right? <laughs> you know, who 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 owns the idea? In a libertarian world, it's not a free for all. Someone owns it and can monetize it. And actually, it turns out that takes a massive government bureaucracy often to enforce it, and libertarianism is can be a very weirdly intrusive form of politics. So I'm not sure it's a, so. I, I don't think there's a sweet spot because I'm not sure it's a spectrum. But I also think that there are a hundred different ways you could understand the idea of big government. I suspect you agree.
0: Yeah, and I also I mean there is also a part of me that is this anarchist part that I mentioned earlier that has a sympathy for that argument because but it again depends on what you mean by big government. So So
1: there sorry, is for which sympathy for which sim- argument sympathy Not mine. for the
0: argument <laughs> that worries about big government intervention and uh, right. and and I think the part of me that worries about that is the part that worries about bureaucracy and the entrenchments of power in the in, in bureaucrats that isn't maybe as problematic or as glaring right now when you're thinking about how the economy shapes politics. And so there's maybe other things that we need to worry about before we worry about the bureaucracy. But if you're a radical Democrat, you also have to worry about the bureaucracy and this class of people that become almost independent from all constraints and whose interests are vested in preserving, the, maintaining the kind of character of the state. And I think there is a, a decent and plausible democratic argument against bureaucracy and against professional politicians and against the idea that you have, you need experts to run certain things and that calls for opening up to, of these positions as much as possible and making them as subject to scrutiny as when you're thinking about representatives and that kind of dynamic. So there's a critique of bureaucracy that I have a lot of sympathy for. But I don't think, again, that, the, that, the, that it gets resolved with a libertarian answer, because as you say, I think uh, a, a libertarian world is a world that requires a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of uh, resources from the state. And actually, it's not even a world in which even these ideas of private property are consistently applied to everyone in the world. It's usually for just safeguarding the privileges of those who happen to have property and to criticize those who make claims for redistributing these properties more widely. I mean, you know, you can be libertarian, but then if you're thinking about dispossession in the third world and colonial plundering and exploitation of resources and so on, you're not going to go very far with that world because uh, that worldview, because a real libertarian alternative would require you to pay a lot more attention to the plundering and to the uh, exploitation of and, and to imperialism more generally.
1: And that the classic example of that in the history of relatively recent political thought is... Robert Nozick's Anarchy State Utopia, a classic libertarian text in which he makes a very clear distinction. It's not an anarchist book. He starts with anarchy in order to say say that anarchy is unsustainable. What you get is what he calls the minimal state. And it's been taken up at various points in the last 50 years by the libertarian right in the United States. But they they ignore the bit. I think it's almost in a footnote where he says, of course, if you take this argument seriously, you've got to give it all back to the indigenous people of this continent. Exactly. You know, we can't. You can't start from here and say it's all about personal freedom and and the rights that we all have that attach to ourselves and our bodies and everything else, and ignore all the breaches of those rights on which this entire society Absolutely. is based. And people tend to say, right, we won't read that footnote but we'll just do the other thing. Yeah, and the what kind
0: you... of and and sorry and just as a footnote to that, I mean the kind of system that capitalists like or libertarians like is founded on that appropriation of resources and this accumulation of wealth based on exactly dispossessing others and depriving them of their property rights if you think of territory as a kind of property.
1: So it could be said against this sort of big government libertarian thing the point that I made which is as it were libertarians need government too and so left, right, or however you want to do it, it's a slightly false choice, because in the end, everyone needs bureaucracy. But then what you say makes me wonder, why is it that given I think it's true that everyone hates bureaucracy, I don't think there's anyone who really likes filling in a form or having to go to an office and sit behind a screen in order to get some handout from the government. No one likes it, right? The rich, the poor, no one likes it. So given bureaucracy is such a toxic, potentially toxic idea, how have the right managed to capture the anti-bureaucracy bandwagon? Why isn't it a big... I know some people on the left have tried, but why isn't it a bigger idea on the left? Not least because, and this is true of lots of things, but the main victims of awful, faceless, grim, grinding bureaucracy in any political system are the poor. And to be emancipated from that ought to be, I hesitate to use this phrase, a vote winner for people who also want to redistribute wealth.
0: Yeah, but I think for that you need an an alternative way of thinking about the state and the rule of law. And this is why you need actually the proper radical democratic vision that goes with the critique of bureaucracy that is exactly the one that we don't have now. It's easier for for libertarians and it's easy for the right, I think, because it's coupled with this antagonism between the state and the market and so if you have a vision that says you just need to let free markets triumph and the more free markets the less state the better then of course bureaucracy is associated with the states and then it's easy to then criticize both and to 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 advance with that critique i think it's harder if you have to construct a criticism of both the capitalist free market and the states and and then sort of say look there is a criticism of capitalist free markets and there is another criticism of bureaucracy and the state and radical democracy requires empowering people vis-a-vis both. That's a little bit more complicated because it requires, I suppose, people to subscribe to this alternative, much more demanding vision of, okay, what does real democracy require? And it requires a, a condition that is both, I think, post-capitalist and post-state. And it's a harder sell than the one that just says, let's just go for markets.
1: It is a harder sell. And I, and I know in a way, in these conversations, we've sometimes been talking about slightly different things in that you're talking about an ideal version of democracy, and I keep bringing it back to the thing that we call, label, and experience as democracy, which is a long way from that. I still think there's a puzzle, even in that version, actually. I get that that it's a harder sell, and for intellectual coherence, you probably need to make quite a big leap to that other setting for it. But Now, in the same way that no one really likes paying tax, um, and you can turn arguments about that lots of different ways, including try and remind people that these are necessary sacrifices through to trying to persuade people that if you vote for us, you will never have to pay tax again. Bureaucracy doesn't... Frustration with bureaucracy doesn't feature in quite that way. And it does have real political consequences. So, for instance, you want to bring it back not to ideal, but to actual functioning democracies. A feature of democratic politics in the world at the moment, and the most recent example of this is in the Netherlands, is that parties of the so-called far right, something similar has happened in Argentina, maybe going to happen in the United States next year. A little bit of it has happened in odd places in the UK. are winning elections surprisingly, so the, the Dutch example is, you know, a guy has been around forever, looks like a sort of you know, pound-chop Donald Trump, Wins this huge victory, and it's presented in newspapers as primarily about migration. I don't think it is. I mean, I think that the thing that connects these things is a real popular revolt against green bureaucracy, actually. So you saw it with the sort of ULES revolt in London. You know, the Tories held on to an unwinnable seat, Boris Johnson's seat. You know, there's no way they can win that seat in a million years, except to say, we won't make you jump through these bureaucratic hoops in the name of ecological whatever it is that resentment with bureaucracy can be mobilized in dramatic ways but the left are no good at it
0: yeah because i think the only vision that the left is with is a vision of a state that gives social protection to people and Mm -hmm. uh, and contains capitalism somehow and because it 's bound up with is basically the project of what I call the rule of law, so it 's about making law more progressive. well, the rule of law requires paperwork and so requires you know certificates registration you need to to be able to claim benefits from the state. you need to also produce a paper trail that the state can then hang on to and I think because the left has become so wedded to this as the only way through which you could extend extend rights and redistribute resources and have a project of social justice. In other words, the, the project of social justice, which used to be in the old days a, a transnational democratic project, has become just a project of changing the, the laws of the state or whichever state it applies to. And then they're vulnerable to the critique of the state from the right, and they haven't got anything else to Come up with—they don't have a constructive proposal, and so they're really stuck because they're left. They've lost the battle on the alternative vision of this other world that could be, as I say, post-capitalist, post-bureaucratic, post state and uh, and sell that vision in the right way as something that actually works for people and that they're already committed to. Because why would you not want to live in that world? I mean, it's make it makes a lot of sense. It's a very intuitive idea. They've lost that ideological battle, and so they're now left with defending the status quo which is not always defensible because some of the criticisms are plausible and you can yeah you, you but one needs to have an alternative vision to say look we can overcome these problems and if you don't have that then you're just left playing on the defensive
1: two more questions so the second one from anand i'm going to ask it i'm not going to try and answer it it's a huge question so it's one of those huge questions so i'm going to ask you to give a short answer to it could you discuss the connections between democracy and human rights I ask it because it does touch on a few of the things that we've talked about. And I'm genuinely curious to know in the vision that you have articulated, which is, in some ways, an account of democracy that does locate it at the level of the human, I think, as opposed to some of the other places it could be located at the level of the demos, which is not the same as the human. How important in that, if at all, for you is the idea of human rights?
0: It's really important, but for me, what is also been lost in a way is the fact that human rights are the result of democratic political struggles. And so the the fight for human rights is often the fight of a group of people who are very partisan about this notion of humanity and things that we all share and claims of people just because they're humans that are not dependent on this or that state securing those rights, And that has required a huge mobilization and was itself a political argument. And my worry with contemporary human rights discourse is it's it's all about rights and no responsibilities. And it's very much depoliticizing because it's depoliticizing the topic of human rights and it's making it sound as though there are these things they are so obvious. Why don't you all like them? And that's in a way speaks to the problem that exactly the left has to be able to campaign politically for some of these things without taking them for granted and without assuming that we all agree and that we all we should like them and to show that in fact they are always the result of a political process in which there has been huge resistance. Something that seems very obvious now was not at all obvious decades ago and was itself the result of a kind of democratic argument. So I see them as having a really tight connection But unfortunately, in the contemporary human rights discourse, they're played against each other because democracy is always assumed to be about people renegotiating rights and renegotiating claims. And so it's always about, in some ways, through this more crude democratic version that we started with, which is you take preferences for granted. And so some people don't like human rights. And so why should a democratic body not change the content of rights or or change the way in which courts defend rights and so on, on the one hand? And on the other hand, so, so the politics is all... On the side of national democracy and those who don't like those kinds of arguments just defend rights as though they were self-sustaining valid claims and they were as though they were obvious and as though they always been obvious and so how can you not see this when in fact as i say they are themselves a result of a political process and require constant political mobilization to be defended and protected
1: and i completely agree just as you won't have to pay this congestion charge as a good vote winner saying to people this is good for you Why can't you see that it's good for you? Why don't you like it more? Is a terrible campaigning slogan, but the left doesn't always remember that.
0: And it's also, I mean, it's very patronizing as well, because there are, of course, uh, criticisms of all of these things, and some of them are more plausible, some of them are less plausible. And part of the democratic challenge is to be able to engage with the criticism and to engage with the reasoning process behind any of these criticisms. And it's kind of, on the one hand, lazy reasoning to say, well, it's so obvious that I'm not even going to bother explain it to you why it's good and why you need to do this. But on the other hand, it's also hugely patronizing people and I suspect that's also why many reject and rebel to these ideas because they feel patronized by the elites.
1: So the last question is from Ji Yong Kim and it's a question to you Lea. It says love your discussions and your book free however I ended up agreeing with your mother slash cousin scratching my head on my grandfather did not spend 15 years locked up in prison so that I would leave Albania to defend socialism i know Lea, i know you get asked this a lot so I, know. I would love to understand where your optimism towards socialism is coming from i know you must so since you publish free you have been asked this a lot and i'm asking again on behalf of jeon kim but I, people do do want to know the answer given the experiences of your family in albania where does your optimism towards socialism come from
0: yeah, I, I, um, it's, you do get
1: asked it a lot. I
0: do, you? yeah, yeah, and actually more, more in Albania, oddly, than outside Albania, because it's as though you know this is the problem with when I'm here, socialism is only treated as a system of ideas, and when I'm in Albania, socialism is just a history, and in one case, it's a terrible history that invalidates the system of ideas. And in the West, it's a great system, at least for the kind of Western left, it's it's a good system of ideas and the history is not really your history. So you don't bother. So if people have had tragic experiences, well, it's because they didn't get it right or there was something they were missing or because they're somehow backward and flawed. And so I'm constantly pulled in these two directions on the one hand of wanting to take this history really seriously. But on the other hand, also understanding that there is something to the critique of capitalism that is important and needs to be resurrected and that you can't throw away. The baby with the bathwater. I mean, the biographical answer is that I was when I went to study in Italy. I was a libertarian and uh, and very very right wing, as most people are in Albania. And then I was exposed to Gramsci and Eurocommunism. And then I remember this book by Enver Hoxha, the Albanian communist leader, that said Eurocommunism is anti-communism. And so I became a Eurocommunist, thinking that being a Eurocommunist was being an anti-communist, and therefore the contradiction somehow was resolved. But in terms of where do I get the optimism about socialism and where do I get the faith for me it's always about starting with the criticism of the society in which you live in so if I was living in a socialist state, I'd probably be very critical of that socialist state and seeing the problems well, as, and, as you and were, right? exactly <laughs> and, and advocating an alternative and here I am in London and the United Kingdom which is not going to become anything other than capitalist anytime soon and so I feel like I have a responsibility to criticize in as radical way as possible to try and open avenues for intellectual research that aren't there and so it's not really about whether it's likely or not likely or whether it's feasible or not feasible it's more about preserving a space for thought that encourages people to be critical wherever they are and to try and think about those criticisms in as coherent way as possible
1: we're going to do another episode of questions before christmas because we've had loads of questions about the most recent episodes in the history of ideas if you have any more Share them with us. Follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas and I will try and answer them as best I can. Leah and I will be coming back in the new year with a whole new series of conversations. Next week, I'm going to be talking to two economists, Diane Coyle and Dieter Helm, about the history and the future of how we measure economic well-being. Do please join us for that. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.